This is a presentation of the Trine Broadcasting Network, part of the Center for Sports Studies at Trine University. Learn more at trine.edu. From Studio A inside the Rick L. and Vicki L. James University Center, this is Trine Line. Hello, I'm James Tu, Senior Director of Content and Communications at Trine University, and this is the Trine Line Podcast. Trine University President Dr. Earl D. Brooks II will discuss some of the latest happenings at Trine University and issues in higher education. Thank you again, Dr. Brooks, for joining me today. Thank you, James. Always a pleasure to be with you. About a month ago now, back at the end of February, the 17th annual Trine University Scholarship Gala raised a record amount. What made this event so successful, and what does this money raised provide for our students? Another great evening for our institution, another near record crowd. I think the thing that uh, really attracts donors and guests this evening is that they know that the dollars raised or the dollars they give uh, to support that event go directly back to our students in the form of student scholarships or to support our Books and Beyond program, which helps students with uh, assistance with books for a classroom if they need it, with computers, with all sorts of incidentals or things to support uh, their time here at, at Trine University. For the second year in a row, we had another really great guest speaker. Last year it was Lou Holtz. This year it was Isaiah Thomas, who did a wonderful job that evening in his message uh, relating it back to uh, his growing up in Chicago and, uh, you know, telling his story and his success and about what giving back has meant to him and what's become in his life in a, in a very meaningful way and relayed that to our donors that evening in a very powerful message that uh, was telling me you never know who you're going to help, but it's about giving back and helping others that help get us where we're all at. And so uh, just made it for a really wonderful evening. We're, uh, very appreciative again of the James Foundation for their annual matching gift opportunity they give each year a matching gift up two hundred fifty thousand dollars to support our books and beyond uh, program and we're just uh, really really appreciative of all of our donors and guests that, that attend every year and to go to watch this thing grow from where we started 20 years ago and we raised twenty five thousand dollars in an event here across town to raising over a million dollars in one evening is an incredible success and and kudos to all of our staff and folks in our development operation and uh, Gretchen Miller and everybody that really came off, and uh, we had a fabulous evening. You mentioned about scholarships and books and beyond and such things supporting our students. And, of course, for the st- students, one of the things that means for them is they don't have to take out as many loans to cover their education here. And right now, uh, as we're in the midst of a presidential uh, campaign, student loan debt, debt is a hot topic. Uh, can you give me a little bit of background on this issue? Yeah, I think for many, uh, many years, institutions were not held very accountable in terms, I think, of controlling their uh, cost, of uh, watching what was going on with uh, financial aid. I know, for example, for us, the last six or seven years, we try to control our costs at 2% or less increases each year, being very cognizant and aware of that, while also trying to increase our endowment and the opportunities uh, for uh, for students, but it was a, a, a long period of time as institutions got into what we call the, the arms race or competitions with facilities on campuses. And a lot of that was being put on the backs of students through tuition increases 
versus fundraising, which we never gotten into that mode here, but I think it helped to drive institutional costs. A lot of those costs, unfortunately, got passed along to students, and with passing along those costs and those high increases of tuition, uh, drove student debt loads. And today, uh, it's hard to believe the student, the figure for student uh, debt loans, which I think is $1.5 trillion, is now outpacing credit card debt in our nation. So very serious issue. Didn't the for-profit institutions kind of have a lot to do with that as well? They did. And as we know, uh, since that time, beginning, I think with the previous administration, a lot of those began closing, and rightly so, a lot of unaccredited institutions that were part of that as well that had very little or no accountability in terms of regulation, accreditation, things of of uh, that nature. But uh, yes, they had a significant impact on increasing that debt. I know you mentioned, uh, was it $1.5 trillion yes. in student loan debt? I know some people say that it was primarily, you know, the for-profits that were doing that or that it's certain you know, a certain number of students who are running up these huge debts that are kind of skewing it. But it sounds like maybe it's a little bit more widespread issue than that. What well, do you think? I, th- I think so. I think everybody, public and private, has uh, has to own some of what has happened there. I think it's also, you got to dig a little bit deeper to truly understand that not all of that is just undergraduate debt. That also includes graduate school debts, law school, medical school, things of that nature. In 2017, I saw a figure recently that the average debt load around 2017 in terms of student borrowing was around $30,000. That's pretty manageable. It's pretty. It's always been hard for me to wrap my head around an institution being part of allowing a family to go $75,000, $100,000 in debt for uh, an education without knowing there's a career outcome and an income stream to to fund that. For example, at Trine, uh, and these are recent figures that just came from our uh, enrollment financial aid office, our average uh, debt load for a student after four years is $25,000. We believe that's a very affordable and comfortable for a family when we turn around and compare that to a 99 job, a 99% job placement rate, uh, and something that's very manageable. But to think about some of these astronomical borrowing figures that you hear for an individual, it's a little more understandable if you're $100,000 in debt and you're in medical school. Uh, but for to look at some of these high debt loads for undergraduate majors, I think is uh, very unfortunate and I think very misguiding of institutions that allow that to happen to a student and a family. Why do you think uh, the student loan debt, I mean, is it, again, the $1.5 trillion just that we're at that number? Why at such a talking point? Or what other things is it kind of causing that's... I think it is. I think the one thing that's happened in the last three to five years is institutions have begun looking and, and controlling costs. Now there's all types of, uh, you mentioned election coming up, that sort of thing, all types of, it's politicized now in terms of who's going to handle it and how you're going to handle it. But it's a it's a, it's a huge uh, debt load. There are different, I think, looks at policies at how we address it uh, going forward. So I, th- so I think going forward, it's a much more controllable issue now because I think higher education costs are more under control. I think the debt issue is, is very well known and present with families and prospective students. So I'm not as concerned about it going forward, although we have to watch it carefully and monitor it now becomes an issue for all those students that are in that $1.5 trillion range of paying back that debt. How is that handled over a period of time? Let's imagine for a minute that 
Earl D. Brooks II <laughs> is not president of Trine University, but you are the president of the United oh, States. Oh, wow, I got a huge promotion. Huh? It depends on if you'd really want the job exactly, at this point. Yeah. But um, what would you do to, to solve this crisis? Or uh, one this thing, I, I think that the amount of a borrow has to be maximized, that it ought to be for tuition only. There are a lot of borrowers that borrow beyond just uh, tuition dollars to attend college. So I think there needs to be a, a maximum average and a maximum amount. Also, I think the the payback system, and I think I've heard several politicians now getting this, ought to be payback ought to be based on income level and revenue streams and that interest rates need to be controlled and try to be at a, at a fixed price. I know interest rates vary across the board, but whether it's a uh, you know, the government got into the business of loans or the banks or uh, Sally May or whatever the lenders are in the higher education market. Uh, I think, one, that there's got to be better control in the amounts that are that are loaned out. I think that the uh, interest percentages have got to be maintained at a certain level. And I think all the paybacks has got to be managed around a student's income level versus a, a, a higher amount of payback than what your income would allow coming out of, of college. So there's a lot of, a lot of things been talked about in that regard. The good thing about state of Indiana, and if you're an Indiana student, you're a student of high need, not only are you eligible for federal Pell Grant dollars, which is around $5,800 a year, but you're also eligible then for Indiana student need-based. And Indiana has one of the top five student need-based programs in the nation where a student of high financial need can get 90 some hundred dollars a year to take at any institution in the state, public or private. So from Indiana's perspective, state of Indiana has done a very good job. As we know, this is not just an Indiana issue. This is a national issue. Now, just one thing you said, talking about maybe trying to gauge a loan payback to, say, a career that a student is going into. I'm just a little curious about how that might work. And, and from my own perspective, I have one son who's here who's going to graduate with an engineering major. His older brother is in graduate school who's Christian ministries major, is going to be a pastor. Right. Likely, there's going to be a, a pretty large amount in difference of the salaries the two right. of them make. So how do you do you just do a base, baseline or an average salary for that profession from the Bureau of Labor Statistics, or how would that That's something like that of, work? one of, way of doing it, or you base it per profession. For example, if you look here at Trine University and you looked at engineering majors, health science majors, which most likely are going to be at the top, uh, the upper end of our scale in terms of salaries coming out of school for careers versus I'd start comparing, but teacher education, for example, which is you know largely talked about as being underpaid, there's a, there's a disparity. And whether you do it by career profession, which I think is not a bad idea either, but there has to be a scale that's fair to everyone based, I think, on their income and their revenue stream. In an ideal world, uh, Washington would be listening to this podcast and implement everything <laughs> that you just said. You know, if anybody from Washington's listening, we're glad to have you have you paying attention. But that's probably not going to happen. And so what do you think eventually will happen? I do think there's been enough discussion about the payback based on income and revenue that that will happen. I don't I don't think controlling the borrow limits. I haven't heard that discussed as much as I would like to have it discussed. I think if you're going to if, if a student's going to go in debt for an education, it ought to be 
tuition based and you shouldn't have the luxury of borrowing the additional dollars for other other things not to say that folks don't don't need that but if you're looking truly at education base all the costs strictly on education but i'm i'm not hearing that discussed a great deal but i do think there has been some discussion and uh, maybe some linkage of going forward and and tying it to revenue or income stream now there's also in the midst of all the politicians of free college free tuition free all of that uh, i'm not sure that helps solve the the solution either because that's a huge number and it's a huge number that uh that politicians that are putting that forth at this point can't even give you a number so understand that the office of of budgets in washington is trying to get their arms wrapped around if legislation finally led down that pathway to free tuition what would that be but my greater con concern is uh, what's the revenue stream to pay for all that as a country as we look at someday, hopefully, in my lifetime, I don't know if I'll see it or not, but really getting back to trying to balance a budget. And those are a lot of the, of the issues. Or just saying we're just going to wipe that $1.5 trillion of debt away. Uh, I'm sure there are a lot of supporters for that if you follow in that group of folks that owe that owe those dollars. But, again, from a revenue, a financial uh, uh, uh a budget conscious process those are two huge numbers to try to deal with in, a, in the financial world you, you kind of mentioned earlier that a big contributor to student debt is rising tuition costs and those kind of costs are affected by things uh, you know i've heard employee health care is hitting a lot of colleges as well yes. as other businesses yes. um you know we have inflation in general that increased you know the cost of food and the the calf or gas for trying vehicles what are some things that uh trying university does to help keep costs in line well we've we saw some of that double digit increase in health care a few years ago we're proud to say going forward for this coming year that there's a zero percent increase in our health care costs that's the first time that has happened in a long long time we consciously went about saying uh six seven years ago we're just not going to increase our comprehensive costs more than two percent regardless of what's going on we've been able to stick by that one by uh, really and I, and I applaud all of our employees and managers here doing a great job, one, of, of managing budgets, being really, really fruitful, stretching our dollars, uh, putting a little more pressure on us from a fundraising perspective so that we raise those dollars rather than put a lot of those costs on the backs of uh, students. As you know, we've, we've grown a lot. As we've grown and expanded, we've done a lot with facilities, either renovation or new facilities. We have never put the construction or cost around renovation or cost facilities on the backs of students. We've always done that through uh, fundraising and feel like that tuition dollars need to go back into the classroom to support instruction and to support uh, our faculty. So we just consciously have said that for a number of years now. We're at 2% of less. A few years we've been under 2%. I think we're right at 2% uh, th again this year. And I can say now going next year we're going to continue – to do that all at the same time trying to raise more endowment dollars in the last two or three years we've made a significant impact on uh, our endowment and growing that which produces again more scholarship dollars we've raised more annual uh, student scholarship money so uh, just being very mindful of our budget managing it the best we can from a revenue standpoint controlling our costs 
so that we can make a private higher education affordable. And you may have seen uh, an article goes back to last June run by the uh, Indianapolis Star, but it's a chart that puts out, I think, like the top, I don't say it's the top 20, but it's a group of 20 or 25 schools in Indiana, and it's uh, got all of their costs and increases per year. And if you looked at that chart, we were at the, we were at the lowest level in terms of increase for the year but also second or third from bottom in terms of our total cost of tuition, room, and board. And that's something that I'm very, very proud of, that we continue to do a very good job, particularly in making a private higher education affordable here. And it's because of that string of low increases. Now, besides providing scholarships and keeping our costs in line, what are some other things that Trine University does to help our students keep loan debt to a minimum well as you know we've gotten big into the dual enrollment and dual credit world and so we've worked with uh, somewhere between 35 to 40 high schools around the region in the state of indiana and you say well why are you talking about dual enrollment well more and more each year more students are coming to try that have a semester of college behind them that may have a year of college behind them some may have a year and a half or two years of college behind them. what it does it significantly reduces their cost because the cost to take a uh, a three-hour course at the high school level dual credit is $75 compared to what normal tuition would be at a school. And so we're seeing more students finish in three years here because of our dual credit plan. And then just looking at properly advising them during the admissions process that they are well aware up front of what costs are, what are the financial aid you're going to get, whether it's federal, state, or whether it's from Trine University, and to uh, – educate those folks and also pass along to them if there are debt that they're going to incur what that's going to look like not just for the year but for the four-year period that that they are here and then also educating them on the potential return on that investment that you know we have good job placement rate whether you're i don't care what the major here from criminal justice to education to health sciences to engineering career placement here has been outstanding, but also be able to give them a gauge or an average, okay, at the end of this period, if you're a teacher, you're most likely your career income is going to be this. This is the average for engineering. This would be the average for health sciences. So they're well-informed coming in. And so part of what institutions need to start doing better is the whole financial aid education process for parents and students early, early on. So there's a number of things that that uh, you can do, a lot of factors that weigh in, but I feel really good that that information is shared not just by financial aid but admissions but really uh, that even as staff and some faculty we feel comfortable talking about that now because we want to continue to control cost and make a try and education affordable to all. Kind of going back to on the topic of scholarships, student scholarships are a key part of Trine University's Invest in Excellence capital campaign which will soon be drawing to a close. And some other elements I know of that campaign have been uh, capital investments, such as, like you mentioned, new buildings or equipment. And you also mentioned the university endowment. Um, what is the importance of each of these areas, scholarships and operational funds kind of being one, and then capital projects, and then endowment? Yeah, so I mentioned the operational funds. That's what we call the the trine fund around here that's just really annual fund dollars dollars can go toward the normal operations of the university that allow us to keep our costs low in the current campaign 
uh, our goal for try and fund uh, was $30 million. And I'm looking right here off figures now. We currently stand at 29.9 in this campaign, or right at 100% of goal. So we're actually going to uh, exceed goal. We've done uh, particularly well in the endowment area, which was a $20 million goal for us. We're a little over $19 million. That's really a good number for us because endowment has been the hardest number for a lot of institutions to raise. We're now getting to a point that really good at this. And, of course, capital, and capital's got anything from the MTI Center to residence halls to Thunder Ice Arena. There's a lot in that capital number, and we've done very, very well on it. What you will see as we finish up this campaign and we flip uh, the script, our next campaign will look differently in terms proportionally we won't have the higher the, the need for capital dollars. Rather, we're going to see a bigger number, a lesser number for capital, a higher number for endowment dollars. So now we can continue to raise dollars for scholarships so we continue to control those costs. And so there'll be a different focus in the next campaign in terms of the priority of these three. But all three are critically important. And those percentages change really based on the condition of the institution at the time and what those needs are to best serve its students. Maybe, uh, and I know personally for me, before I started working in higher ed, I, I can't say that I had a real clear grasp of what an endowment is or does. Maybe could, could you explain a little bit for our listeners who may be yeah. like I was? Uh, so is? Uh, an endowment fund is, is uh, a permanent fund established by a donor, a family, an estate, whatever that goes that's uh, managed by uh, our investment firm. We have an investment firm at the university. We have an investment committee of the board of trustees and along with myself and, and uh, Jody Greer, our CFO, that helped to manage that on that. So, for example, and you take the average three-year yield of that's 5%, which is the return back to the university. So uh, let's say for a minute uh, that uh, someone gives a $100,000 and it goes into an endowment form. That, that $100,000 is never impeached or encroached upon, but rather the earnings from that then – produce the dollars to provide uh, annual scholarships for the university. So currently, we're pressing right out the $40 million mark in our endowment uh, each year, and so there's a yield from that that we give that's part of student scholarships. But again, we don't invade the $40,000. That remains a permanent endowment of the institution. And so we've played a lot of catch-up in that regard. While we've had a lot of success recently, we're not near what where we'd like to be. We'd like to be in the $100 million plus range, and that's why this campaign for us will look a lot differently as we go forward into the next one. We've recently announced that we're going to be adding three new degree programs this fall. We're going to have mechatronics and robotics engineering, plastics engineering technology, and actuarial science. Can you tell me a little bit about each of these programs and what they'll offer to students? Yeah, I think mechatronics and robotics has got a lot to do as well as, as plastics with what we're hearing out in the, in the, uh, with industry and manufacturing in terms of what the skill set and the jobs uh, they have. A lot, lot to be said of what's going on in the automation world. When you look at some of the companies we're uh, close to and we have trustees on our board like with Metal Technologies or Steel Dynamics who are really known for really uh, changing the way cast metals and the steel industry does business as they've gone to, to uh, automation and robotics. So anything from automation certification to actual robotics labs itself, which we will have. But the other thing I would flip to plastics for a minute, we've had a plastics miner for a number of years. And so a 
significant number of our engineers will get that as a minor. Now we see that industry continuing to grow and expand, and with that comes the need to expand that minor to a full-blown major. So really responding to the needs of business and industry to produce folks coming out of our engineering school with more expertise in specific areas. Actuarial science is another. If you look at the Fort Wayne market, you look at folks like Lincoln National or Brotherhood Mutual and all of those areas, and given the fact we already have a strong math department that supports our school of engineering, again, actuarial science was another uh, easy fit for us, along with industry partners in each of these three areas that we've kind of developed so that we got the right fit of internships and co-ops and job placements for graduates of these programs. How do we as a university decide what new majors to offer? I think it's uh, based on what we see in uh, the marketplace, the demands that we hear, sort of doing a a market uh, analysis, taking a look at the resources that it would take to make it available in terms of personnel as it require additional faculty, what type of lab and equipment does, uh, does it take. But the other thing I would say that uh, the starting place for me that I always like to, to push folks on is I want to go all the way to the end of the line, and we've done this, and the question I always ask is, whatever program we start, what's the job opportunity and what's the career outcome for our students? If the career opportunity is not there and it's something that uh, our students can't gain uh, meaningful and gainful employment in right out of school, why are we doing this? And so we always kind of jump to the end of the line, address that question, and work our way back through uh, the finances of it if it makes good sense and if we've got the industry partners to help support it. Recently, on February 20th, Trine University launched the new Trine Center for Sports Studies in Fort Wayne. Mad Ants President Tim Bauman uh, joined us here at a special kickoff event. Um, can you tell me a little bit about the center and what it's going to provide for our students? Yeah, great, uh, great program, multidisciplinary uh, program across uh, a number of our schools, our uh, Ket- Kettner School of Business, uh, Rinker Ross School of Health Sciences, Frank School of Education, and the Jannon School of Arts and Sciences. A lot of different programs. And I, it didn't start for this reason, but there's a lot of interest in Sports, sports media, broadcasting. We've seen what's happened with esports. We've got 1,100 student athletes on our campus. We've uh, got sports and recreation. We've got programs in uh, education. So just looking at how we uh, maximize those from an overall marketing standpoint. And then Brandon Pogorski, who's a member of our uh, faculty and sports management in the Kettner School of Business, has served as the director to sort of help pull all of this together. And so if we're looking at uh, communications and esports, sports media, a lot of the things that we do with the Trine Broadcasting Network around our uh, athletic events uh, on campus and other events and venues that we have. Great opportunity to engage our students in hands-on experience as a part of their education, which is what we pride ourselves in across the board, or whether it's exercise science and tying it to physical therapy or athletic training. Again, all that hands-on experience, regardless of major, we just feel like it's something very, very special and something that we could package together as a collaborative effort uh, across various disciplines and various schools of our campus. And I think, again, a unique pitch uh, that we can make to students that are looking at the, the, uh, the growing world of what's happening in, in sports and the world of uh, athletics and sports media. Very, very excited about it. Great launch event that we had at the first center here uh, 
a couple of weeks ago. And as you mentioned, Tim Bauman, the president of, of the Mad Ants, came up and did a great job kind of sharing with us where he started and how he got to be head of this organization today. Just a great story. And uh, some of our students sitting there, I think, could look at where they're at and envision themselves taking that, taking that path in the future. Once again, I'd like to say thank you to Dr. Brooks for joining me today. And to our listeners, check back next month for more insights from Dr. Brooks on the next Trineline podcast. Thanks for listening to this presentation of the Trine Broadcasting Network, part of the Center for Sports Studies at Trine University. Learn more at trine.edu.